Welcome to episode 80 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm a New York Times bestselling author and erstwhile editor. And I'm your co-host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a literary agent and a publishing contracts expert. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. So today we are continuing our discussion on crafting characters, uh, which we meant to do like three weeks ago, but, uh, you know, the holidays (laughs) happened. (laughs) The holidays did happen. Uh, the holidays happened. I went home to Los Angeles to see my family for actually quite an extended period of time, and I forgot to bring my microphone. (laughs) So there's that. And then Kelly and I both fell victim to the plague. Uh Uh-huh. So, but we are back. Don't worry. We're we back. Hooray. We have not gone We'll never anywhere. leave you guys forever. We'll always be back. We'll always be back. It, we may be a little bit flaky about scheduling, but we'll be back, you know? <laughs> um. So, also, we don't turn the mics on for this, but essentially Kelly and I were like, what were we supposed to talk yeah. about this week? <laughs> we actually put on the podcast from last time and listen to the outro to where we say next week we're going to be talking about such and such. And we had to do that in order to remember because it's been a long time. (laughs) Yes. So today we are actually going to talk about strengths and weaknesses. Mm -hmm. So last week we talked about vulnerability and we didn't really intend to, although that was essentially what the episode was about. Um, because this series, we wanted to talk a little bit more about like the how-to, how to write characters, what makes <clears throat> characters emotionally resonant and all that sort of stuff. And we touched briefly on strengths and weaknesses, but I think we said previously that characters have you know, strengths and weaknesses, and it's also their relationships to each other that make them human, and there also needs to be an arc of narrative change. So... Mm-hmm. This week, we're sort of focusing on the building blocks, you know, so we have identified the central thing that makes a character compelling to us, which is vulnerability. Um, And now the external parts of that character, um, I think we're going to talk about today. Strengths and weaknesses, I think, is pretty subjective, though. Yeah, you know, like. These are sort of external character traits, uh, and I don't mean like the way a character looks or like the color of their uh-uh. hair or anything like that. Um, but these are still more external than vulnerabilities, I think. Um, yeah, yeah, they're more. I guess superficial isn't really the word, but like they're not. Vulnerability is like a really deep-seated thing, and these are more outer layers of you know characters' interior makeup. Yes. And generally, most characters are on some level more cognizant of their strengths and weaknesses, I think, than they are of their vulnerabilities. Um, And these are what I think most people would identify as actual character traits. So when you say Mm -hmm. a character is funny or sarcastic or, you know, loyal or hardworking, these are basically, I think, strengths and weaknesses for a character. Right. Um. And, okay, so when it comes to writing for me personally, I don't think about these traits consciously. Um, 
again, being a pantser, everything just sort of arrives and then I have to sort through it later and make sense of it later. Uh, but and, and for me, characters are not something that I actually have to think about or work out too, too much. Um, but I do have a general idea of character traits first and how to distinguish my characters from each other. Because I think a lot of people focus a lot on a main character and then don't think about how that main character really fits into the world that they've written. Um, because I think I've read a couple of books before that like the main character is very in-depth and awesome and has interesting character traits or it's, and it's three-dimensional, but everything else they're like the only one <laughs> um or there are other around them is like a cardboard cutout <laughs> yeah yeah it's just they're the only real person in a room full of cardboard cutouts um but i do think that being aware of your character traits and how those traits play off of your other characters that are going to be in the book is pretty important because you do want them to be distinct from each other and it's also now that I think about this, it is kind of hard to extricate, for me, creating characters with the fact that they're relationship dynamics. Like, I can't just create one at a time. I have to sort of create everyone at the same time. Um, and it's it's a contextual thing. I think a lot of times when people write, they sort of try and perfect one area before moving on to the next and that can create a disjointed reading experience for me like there's if there's no connective tissue between things between and it, this is all aspects of writing not just your character relationships but like between the character and the world between the character and the plot between the character and anything you know if, if there's no relationship and no connective tissue there or if I feel like the connective tissue is only perfunctorily drawn, then it's a disjointed reading experience for me. Mm -hmm. um, so vulnerability, we mentioned, was sort of like a, it's like a need versus want thing that has nothing really to do with the character's more external traits, which are, you know, their personality traits, like whether or not they're confident or insecure or all sorts of things like that, because those are external manifestations of their internal vulnerability. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, so, I mean, this is so strange for me to give how-tos about anything, because it's easier for me to, like, give an example after something has been created, rather than, this is a prescription of how to do it from beginning mm -hmm. to end, mostly because everyone's process is different. Yeah. And so I don't think there's a way that we can really give a how-to in terms of building, you know, a character from scratch. But maybe what we can do is kind of provide like a roadmap or a, a list of things that or a list of ways that that should look like if you've successfully created a character with these traits, how does that look in the writing itself? Mm -hmm. Because I think... A lot of what you said about characters, um, in relationships that characters have being instrumental to the characters themselves is crucial. Um, you know, there are very few books about just one person alone 
Mm-hmm. by themselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, those books exist, but there's very few of them. And even then, those characters are usually thinking about their relationships with people that they had when they weren't alone. And, you know, so you still have that relationship work um, to do. But I think that, you know, part of the part of the thing that I keep coming back to when thinking about character traits and thinking about strengths and weaknesses in particular is, um, one, Having a character with strengths and weaknesses is important to making the character authentic. Um, I keep thinking about Mary Sue's, which <laughs> is like this, <laughs> this thing that I think kind of grew out of fandom, but now people do sometimes talk about published original work in this way. Uh, Mary Sue was kind of like a self-insert character in fan fiction that was perfect. And, you know, you would write Harry Potter fan fiction and she was a girl who went to Hogwarts who could do all the best magic and was the bravest and the coolest and the best at Quidditch. And she just did everything wonderfully. And she was hot and she was funny and she was everything. Um, because a lot of times in fan fiction, people were writing wish fulfillment and they wanted mm-hmm. to be, you know, and there's nothing really wrong cool. with wish fulfillment. No, of course not. Um, <laughs> I mean, in case you can't tell, I have read a lot of Harry Potter fan fiction. Yes. <laughs> but, um, but, but the Mary Sue character, um, that's kind of what people started to call her. She was like the perfect Mary Sue who did everything great and didn't have any weaknesses. Or if she did have weaknesses, they were very artificial. Mm-hmm. Uh, or they were like those weaknesses that are actually a secret strength or mm-hmm. like somehow adorable, you know, not an actual flawed human. Um, and I think that the balance of having strengths and weaknesses is important in bringing your character to life, making them authentic, making them feel like a real person. So that's kind of why I think it's important that characters have strengths and weaknesses. And I think the way that the way that that looks to me on the page is that it, they, they are threads, you know, like the vulnerability, strengths and weaknesses are an inherent part of your character's makeup, and they're going to always affect the way that your character behaves in the world. And so, you know, it's not like your character just has an opportunity to show off their strength. And in this mm-hmm. scene, my character is going to do this thing that they're really good at. And in this scene, my character is going to show their weakness. It informs everything that you do all the time, every day. You know, we are all people with our own strengths and weaknesses. Like you might be somebody like me who's a procrastinator. <laughs> I procrastinate everything. Like I procrastinate a thousand trillion times a day because it's just a part of who I am. I procrastinate, you know, getting up out of bed in the morning by just checking my phone one more time. And then, you know, I procrastinate making breakfast by, you know, doing a million other things along the way. It's like, that's just part of who I am. I just procrastinate. And so I do it constantly all the time and everything, not in a way that's even noticeable or intentional, but just that's how I am. That's how I interact in the world. Um, you know, and the same thing with people's strengths. It's not, it's not something that in your writing, you should necessarily like shine a light on and make a point of like, here's the scene about my character's strengths. You know, I don't know if I'm articulating it well, but no, I mean, I I agree because it's sort of like you've, you've drawn these traits out of a, a hat or whatever, and you've assembled them together. And then 
they just sort of appear in the text. This is often a problem of telling and not showing, mm. um, which I feel like we could do. We did an episode about this before, I believe, but I think that this is something that you could revisit. But it's often like when, when someone, when uh, the text repeatedly tells you so-and-so is awesome, but then you don't actually find any actual real examples. This is the problem with Ginny Weasley, as we keep mentioning, is that everyone keeps so telling bad. us that she is, like, <laughs> awesome and whatever. And I'm kind of like, but where is it in the text, aside from everyone telling us that she is? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, like, there are times when she does things like she has really great bat bogey hexes and that's like supposedly an example of her strength and you're kind of like but what does that even mean like just because you are skilled at something that's actually not a personality trait <laughs> you know <laughs> skills are different from personality traits and right. again this does go back to the vulnerability thing that we talked about and how your personality traits are external manifestations of your vulnerability, of your character's vulnerability. And maybe even calling them strengths and weaknesses is a little too reductive. Because I do think that, of course, I have recently seen Star Wars, so it is on, on my mind. But there is a dark side and a light side to the Force, right? It's still the same Force, but there is a dark side and a light side to it. Everything... Any sort of personality trait has a dark side and a light side to it. There are the positive aspects of a trait. If you are, say, for example, you are funny, there are positive aspects to being funny. You can lighten a mood. You can make people feel better. And then there are the negative sides of being funny, which is you can actually be quite hurtful, maybe unintentionally or even intentionally. Like, these are all... So I feel like a lot of character traits are kind of neutral in that way. But it's how those traits, whether or not they fall more positively or or they manifest as more positive aspects of themselves or the negative aspects of themselves, is probably a more nuanced way of looking at it. Because you can't say, like, a character's strength is their wit. Because often they think a weakness has to then be a diametric opposite to that strength. But that's not always the case. Usually our strengths and weaknesses are related to each other. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's also, you have to wonder, so if a character is funny, why are they funny? Is, are they the kind of person who deflects because they don't want people to get too close? Or do they, are they the kind of person who grew up in a, in a situation where everything was so tense all the time that they had to use humor to try and, liven things up there are different reasons why people are funny and you know so as opposed to just slapping kind of a surface you know gloss on something you have to sort of really understand why they are the way they are or if a character is on the flip side someone who's very stoic or off-putting why are they so stoic and off-putting you know there these are all sort of questions you have to start asking and i do think that a lot of writing is asking questions um, I mean, editing, and Kelly can tell you, most of the time, editing is asking questions. Mm-hmm. And the most powerful question anyone can always ask is why. Yeah. <laughs> well, why are they doing that? Is why, why this? Why that? Just why? And if you can, it's like splitting the atom, right? You're trying to get down to the most component parts, the most distilled essence where you can't split it up anymore. 
that's really what asking why does because you're trying to get mm-hmm. at if you try if you get down to that core distilled essence then you start to understand what makes these characters tick and i also mm-hmm. think it makes writing characters easier once you finally understand who they are at their core um yeah so the the personality trait being like all of this that kelly and i've talked about it's all related. You know, we talked about how it's really hard to sort of individually pick out these sorts of things because they they all feed into each other. There's no real way you can only work on one and then the other and then the other and then the other. Um, I mean, I guess some people can and do, um, but I can't. So, so for me, this is all related and this is all done kind of simultaneously. It also makes writing really hard. <laughs> writing is really hard, you guys. It sucks. I don't know why I'm doing this for a living, because it's hard. Um, any, I don't know, is there is there anything else that I've sort of missed at that point? We're talking about strengths and weaknesses. I don't know if we've really talked about weaknesses. Because there are, as I've said, negative aspects to any personality right. trait. Right. And I think too, it was good. It was a good idea to point out kind of the difference between skills and these strengths and weaknesses, Mm -hmm. because I think you're right that they are different. And I think it's really easy to go to skills, um, or lack of skills kind of as a placeholder for those things. But I do think they're different. And I think again, like the vulnerability, um, they're rooted in, if not the same deep emotion that vulnerability is in, you know, they are rooted in something more personal than just what you happen to be good or bad at. And, you know, like weaknesses can be things like, um, like what, like neediness or Mm -hmm. clinging to people. It can be, um, you know, aloofness or coldness. It can be, um, you know, I don't even know dishonesty or, uh, any other number of things, but those aren't, you know, those aren't skills. Those are some, some core part of your interior life that I think is shaped, um, by many factors and, and is a deeper part of who you are. Yeah. I mean, if we use Harry as an example, he's good at Quidditch, but that's not a personality trait. That's just something he does. He's just Mm -hmm. good at Quidditch. Um, or even if you think about yourself as a person, you've got character traits and you've got personality traits. And then there are things that you do, whether you do them well or you don't do them well. Uh, skills can be learned, but personality traits are inherent to a person. So that's kind of, and it's often like for a, a, a period of time, um, and also in, in fan fiction, a lot of times skills are a substitute for personality. Yeah. You know, like you have the really kick-ass hero who's good at everything and he's really good at fighting and he's good at slaying the dragon or whatever. <clears throat> but that doesn't say anything about who this person is as mm-hmm. like, you know, if you were to take them out of the context where they can sh- where they can show off their skills, what do they do? Right. Yeah, and I think too 
I, I would caution against, I've heard people sometimes um, get very caught up in whether or not their characters are likable and wanting to kind of stack things on the strength side and go really light on the weaknesses so that their character will be likable and will be good and will be, you know, and, and like we, we said, um, all people, the best people are flawed and have impulses that are, you know, not great. You know, the most angelic, wonderful people um, experience real human emotion, like jealousy or, you mm-hmm. know, whatever. Um, and I think that when you err too much on the side of trying to make your character capital G good without any of the uglier or more complicated or less flattering um, aspects uh, or weaknesses, I think you're actually making... You're, you're, go, you're, what am I trying to say? You're making your own job harder. It's backfiring on you because it makes characters them less relatable. Are, yeah. They have this like veneer of perfection and nobody, I mean, I'm not perfect. So why would reading about a, a perfect character be interesting? It is interesting to read about somebody who is good, but flawed and makes mistakes and overcomes those mistakes. And, you know, like that wrestling with that humanity is interesting. And I think that, um, you know, and that's even why too, like we have villains, right. Who are charismatic and that's why, you know, they amass their followers or whatever else, because there's something about them that is so charismatic or magnetic. Um, and those are strengths. Those are positive traits that have been twisted and been Mm -hmm. used by people in, you know, malevolent ways. Um, but you know, with, with both your heroes and your villains, you want to think about that. Everybody has a balance. Everybody has, um, good and bad traits. And, and like JJ said, it's, you know, whether you're on that light side or that dark side of it and what you do with it. And, you know, so I guess I would just caution against like, don't ignore weaknesses in your protagonists. They're equally important. Yeah. Being a likable character or creating a likable characters, I think, or a character that is universally likable rather Mm. is impossible. Yeah. And it, of course, Kelly has not seen The Last Jedi, so I can't... I'm working on it. <laughs> <sighs> um, but there is, interestingly, and I'm going to try and talk about it without getting too spoilery, but there is an interesting thread about failure in The Last Jedi. And a lot of reactions from a lot of fans was that they hated it. Because that's not what they want, you know? you A lot of people, I think, maybe conflate likability with aspirational. Mm. So when your heroes fail or if they don't accomplish what you want them to do, then you think, oh, they're bad or that they are whatever. But in my opinion, I think failure makes characters more relatable. And actually this goes back to a book five Harry thing. Cause I know a lot of people find book five Harry extremely whiny and all that sort of stuff. And he is. It's not that he isn't whiny and that he isn't kind of entitled Brad about it. Um, but And also, though, that entitlement comes to bite him in the ass at the end of book five. Um, but also his actions were not necessarily wrong. You know? No. You know, and I think that's... I do think that order, I mean, for many reasons, Order of the Phoenix is my favorite. I 
partially because I think that the view of good and bad or good and evil in that book is the most nuanced because you have Umbridge, who is just, I love Umbridge so much. I mean, I hate her, but I love to hate her. (laughs) Such a well-written character. She's so good. Um, And I think it's so nuanced in that book, the sort of good intentions can be twisted. So these are good traits that someone can have. Like Harry's desire to protect his friends and those that he loves is also tempered by the fact that it causes him to leap to conclusions. And those conclusions are what's devastating. And he fails to say, I'm going to spoil this book for everybody, but if you haven't read Harry Potter, I'm also, why? Um, (laughs) And I apologize. But he fails to save Sirius. And it's his screw-up, his failure that gets this beloved character killed. And I think that's really important. And I, of course, like it's been such a long time since the fifth book came out and I can't, I I remember people's reactions to order of the Phoenix. And most of them were centered about how unlikable Harry is in that book, which I never necessarily agreed with. Um, I understand it, even if I didn't necessarily agree with it, but I wonder if people go back now and reread Order of the Phoenix, if they have a slightly different perspective on the actions Harry takes in this book, because I thought it was incredibly realistic Mm -hmm. and nuanced. Oh yeah. It's one of the books that's grown on me the most. I do think, um, that when I go back and reread the series, book five is probably one of the most accomplished books in the series. And it's a book that I did not like when I first read it. And it actually wasn't because of Harry. Um, because although I agreed that he was whiny and annoying, um, you know, and, and it was frustrating and very, I used to call it Harry Potter and the caps lock of rage. Um, I mean, it's true though. <laughs> and you know, but, but that didn't necessarily bother me because again, I did find it realistic. Um, and I was close enough in his age that, that I could sort of kind of relate to it at that point. Um, for me, the problem was that I just felt like that book just completely stopped everything. Like we'd led up to this huge climax in book four and then just nothing happened. And I was like, what? So I was, I was mad for different reasons, but, um, but I also think that, you know, I didn't appreciate how well-crafted that book was until going back and reading it again and again. And I do think it's probably one of the better crafted books in the series. Yeah. I mean, there, I, I do like using Harry Potter as an example of craft and there are many reasons people, dump on Harry Potter because it's a kid's book or the writing is simplistic or this or that, but writing isn't just prose. Mm. Prose is kind of the least important part. I mean, it's an important part. Don't get me wrong. Like you can't have terrible prose, but having beautiful prose is the least important part of good writing in my opinion, or because, you know, and Kelly and I talked about this in different podcasts about what literary writing is or that kind of a thing. And for me, I need writing to be invisible for the most part. I can be, because otherwise, if it calls it too much attention to itself, then I get distracted or I start skimming or I have to put the book down because something is taking me out of the story that I'm in. And Harry Potter is a really good example to use as, as craft, to teach points of craft, because things that Harry Potter does do well, they do well on invisible levels that you can't point to like, this is a beautiful sentence. Okay. Yeah. But that, you know, that doesn't matter. Yeah. Like books are littered with beautiful sentences, but 
beautiful sentences yeah. are just that. They just say that you can write a pretty sentence. And I'm sure J.K. Rowling can. But she builds her characters and she crafts her books in a very different way. And what I've always liked about Harry Potter is how realistic her characters have, have always seemed to me. And this is not just Harry Potter, but her adult books as well. I love the characters in her adult thrillers. I, I really do. Like, I, they feel real and human to me because they're... And, I mean, Harry is a little bit different because, he, like Aang from Avatar The Last Airbender, he is the good hero who has to stand in opposition to the evil villain. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a little bit different. But her adult series, her main protagonist is a private detective. And I... It's, you know, he's got all the right positive traits, but he isn't perfect. And he's, um, I, so I, I, I do think that trying to dissect what makes J.K. Rowling's characters good is really, really, really useful in actually teaching yourself how to write good characters. And of course, everyone's opinion is an opinion because there are plenty of people who don't like Harry Potter and that's fine. Oh yeah. Um, and they have their own perfectly valid reasons for not liking Harry Potter, but I think there is a reason those books caught on and it Mm -hmm. isn't actually the premise either. Yeah. A lot of other books have magical schools, but they've never, they just, they're not the same. I think Mm -hmm. as Harry Potter. Um, so the, I was going to talk a little bit about this the next time, which is kind of the narrative arc part but I actually was talking to some writers and we were talking about dynamic characters or characters that grow and change over the course of a series. And it was actually in context to Star Wars. But um, I, I actually said later, I was like, I don't know if a character necessarily has to grow and change in a book in, in order to be good. And I think there are two types of character arcs and growth. Um, you have something like Zuko from Avatar The Last Airbender, and he is a character that grows and changes throughout the course of the series. And then you have Aang, who doesn't really change all that much, but it is, it is the force of Aang's convictions that changes the world around him. So something has to be changing all the time, but it doesn't necessarily have to be like a character's, I guess, philosophy or, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think Harry is a little bit like that, that I know a lot of people find Harry boring for good reasons, but he is the kind of character because he's the good hero against an evil villain whose convictions in what is right is what changes the world around him. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know. Do you agree? I do. Yeah. Especially with those two examples. I think those are great examples of that. They, they're characters who, yeah, who shape the world. They, they create the change through the strengths of their own beliefs, as opposed to the change being internal within them. It's like Katniss from the Hunger Games too. She doesn't change all that much from beginning to end. Um, but it is her, she's the active agent that changes the world around her, but it's mm-hmm. not necessarily due to character growth. 
No. If anything, she doubles down on who she is Mm -hmm. at the start of the series, toward the end of it. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, Yeah, there are a lot of sort of, a lot of these writing rules, like you have to have dynamic characters and you have to show and not tell and you have to start with action or any of these sorts of rules. They exist for reasons, obviously, but I think you have to sort of pick apart why they've been laid down as rules you know the whole like oh you know you have to to know the rules before you can break them i don't actually think that people break rules if you actually think about what is good writing they still sort of adhere to a lot of the similar guidelines but i think a lot of people take these rules and then just don't think about why they are they are way they are yeah they they exist for a reason to elicit something specific. And so if you're writing just to prescription, mm-hmm. it's not, it's not going to work. You can't, it's not a recipe that you can say, all right, if I do a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of this, I'm going to get a good book. It doesn't work that way because all those rules exist to bring about a certain thing, to evoke a certain thing, whether that's you know, an emotional response in the reader or, you know, a narrative arc or a, you know, whatever. Um, the rules exist for a reason, like JJ said. It's, and I mean, if you disregard actually, that reason. Cooking is actually a pretty good metaphor or a simile for this because, you know, you have ingredients for whatever dish that you're trying to make. Um, and generally rep- recipes exist that basically help you f- you know, a certain amount of this, a certain amount of that to prevent it from being too heavy on the spices here or this or that. And there are other things too. You actually, sh- you need to know what the basicals, basic principles of cooking are, uh-huh. why you do things the way they do, um, yep. or, or why you do things in the order that you do. Uh-huh. Um, and also the breaking the rules thing in, in cooking a lot of breaking the rules is simply creativity or just looking mm-hmm. at something differently and putting reassembling them differently but still adhering to the rules of cooking. It's like, oh, I'm going to make, you know, a it's a terrible example, but it's like if you make a boiled egg, you can't make a boiled egg without actually boiling water. Like you can't you can't like, you know, fry an egg and be like this is my take on a boiled egg. That's not what <laughs> That, you know, you've made something entirely different. That's not how it works. Or you can't boil an egg without water. You can't just, like, stick it in a pot and then turn on turn on the stove. And, like, <laughs> you know, things exist, you know. So those sort of rule-breaking types of things, I think people, when, when they think about rule-breaking, that's what they're doing. They're trying to boil an egg without water rather than understanding <laughs> that the water is important to make the boiled egg. So, yeah. I don't know if that metaphor just ran away with me, but you know, <laughs> it's mean, our first time back in a couple of weeks, guys. <laughs> I did a lot of cooking over break, so cooking is kind of fresh on my mind. So <laughs> I've been doing more cooking too. I, you know, though I, I love to cook. I hate grocery shopping. <gasps> grocery shopping is the worst. <laughs> It's the literal worst. It's the actual worst. And I, you know, obviously, you know, when Kelly and I lived in our apartment in New York, it was actually a pretty decent kitchen. Yeah, it was huge. It was huge For New York. For New York, it was huge. But what it didn't have was counter space. None. Zero. (laughs) 
There was literally the sink and then like a little overhang where we could kind of fit a dish rack and that was it. Yeah, that was about, that was all. We did pretty much everything else on like a pantry or our table or um, all the prep work and stuff like that. And Kelly cooked a lot more when we were living together than when I, when I was living there. And it really isn't until I moved away from New York and had a house that I started cooking more. But I do, what I like about cooking, even though I am not a foodie, is the process of cooking. I like putting things together. I like the the actual process of it. I like the steps. I also like trying something different. You know, there there's something about cooking and writing. And in, in fact, I think all creative endeavors, there's something kind of related in all of that. And I think looking and instead of seeing these disciplines as something separate, trying to identify the creative impulse in every single discipline is actually easier to understand to understanding why things work the way they do. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think if there's any f- rules that we haven't talked about yet when it comes to strengths and weaknesses before we kind of move on and wrap up this section. Like other platitudes think, and stuff. I think we hit most of the big ones. Yeah, this, again, you know, apologies for not making this supremely prescriptive, but the very nature of this is really hard to make prescriptive. And this is why we also say to read a lot, because the more you read and the more you try and pick apart why something is working or not working, the the better writer you will be. And sometimes I think bad books teach far more than good ones. Mm. Because I think the very nature of good writing is to not show its hand about as to why it's good. Um, so when a book isn't working for you, and then you sit and you have to figure out why it isn't working for you, I think is just as valuable. So read widely. You don't have to just read the, quote, good books and figure out what makes them good. I think you can read bad books and figure out what makes them bad so you don't you don't fall into the same pitfalls. <laughs> Um, all right. So that kind of, I guess that wraps up this section this, this week, mm-hmm. um, on crafting characters. So let's move on. What are we working on? Um, so I am close to queries right now and have been for a while and, uh, I am reopening on January 15th, which now seems crazy. Why did I agree to do that? <laughs> I should have given myself the whole month. Um, but I'm reopening on January 15th and my goal is to be completely caught up by then. So as of right now, I have 220 queries left to read and 16 manuscripts to respond to and like less than a week to get it done. I think it's going to be fine. I've been averaging um, responding to about 50 queries a day for the last several uh, weeks, which will tell you something about how many queries I was behind. Um, so I think I'll make the query deadline. I'm really hoping to make the requested uh, manuscript deadline. So that's kind of the main 
huge thing that I've been working on. Um, now that the holiday season is over, I am uh, nudging on all my subs that are hanging out there. Um, secret potential project, heavy emphasis on potential is still out in the air too. I'm supposed to be hearing some news on that this week, so we'll see. Um, and I have a manuscript that I read um, this past weekend in a handful of hours. And, um, if you follow me on Twitter and you saw me talking about the manuscript where when I first got the query, when I finished reading it, I was like, whoa, out loud. And then when I finished the book, I was like, whoa, <laughs> out loud. That's this book. Uh, and I have a call to speak with the off author tomorrow. Uh, which I have lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of high hopes for. We'll see what happens there. So pretty busy. What about yeah. you? Um, sort of gearing up with <clears throat> shadow song stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting because like I've finally, I think I have some distance enough to like come back to this book and be like, Oh, I like it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I, I don't know. I wrote, I'd written on Twitter that this was a really hard book for me to write and it was, and it's very personal in, in different ways than my first book and by necessity, because my mental illness is all over this book and by necessity, I kept Shadow Song at arm's length because I was just like, I just can't handle this right now. Um, but my publisher actually tagged me on Instagram with a photo of the finished copies. The finished copies of Shadow Song are at their office, which means that in the next couple of days I should be receiving my copies. And I'm like, all of a sudden, like excited. I had not been, yeah. ex- I hate to admit this, you guys, I have not been excited about this book in, like ever, <laughs> actually ever. Like, to be honest, I've never been excited about this book, which is a terrible thing to say about any of your children. But, truth. Um, we tell the truth here. <laughs> Um, like I said, I, I am, I was incredibly proud of this book, but it's just too emotionally close or harrowing for me to have any real affection for it or excitement about it. I just kind of didn't care. Um, but like, I was like, I saw the finish book. I was like, Oh, Oh, Hey, I have a feeling about it. (laughs) A feeling about it. That isn't weariness. Um, (laughs) So yeah, doing Shadow Song stuff, um, unfortunately, that weariness about that second book and that sort of need for emotional recovery meant that I put off or just didn't bother with a lot of other kind of actual promotional related stuff with Shadow Song. (laughs) And I don't really regret it at all, but it's also like I have to plan the launch party and I'm like... I mean, I have the venue and everything, but like at this point, I think for Winter Song, I was far more on top of everything, interview requests and stuff. Like I was much better about it, but like I, I have so many things that I need to respond to in my email that I'm just like, because <laughs> um, as of this recording, we are less than a month out, um, which now suddenly seems way too close. Like after the after the new year, I was like, "Hey, hang on a minute." <laughs> uh, so that's on Shadow Songs, and I also got my cover flats, and they have effects on it. It's really pretty. <gasps> yeah, so I have those, and then I, I am still drafting Guardians, um, which has been a different writing process altogether. Um, and you know, I mentioned before that like the tone is different, and that's but that's actually not what is tripping me up right now. 
I think I'm overthinking things because I kind of keep going back and rewriting the beginning and rewriting the beginning. And I know I should move beyond rewriting the beginning. And I have, I, there are a lot, I've written more of it, but I just keep going back to tinkering with the beginning because something isn't clicking right now and I can't figure out what it is. And it's bothering me why that I can't figure out what it is. And I know that I should just get it all out and then fix it later. But it's also this thing about writing. The more you write, the harder writing gets, I think. I wish I could tell you guys that it gets easier, but I don't actually think it does or ever will. Because hopefully I get, I'm a better writer with every book that I write. But that also makes me far more cognizant in advance of where the faults and flaws of my writing are. So I'm trying to fix as I go to try and maybe save myself time. But I don't even know if I'm saving myself time. I'm just kind of spinning. Oh, it's terrible. You guys, writing sucks. Why am I doing this? I don't know. (laughs) Ah, the first draft stage. I used to love the first draft. I know. Um, But I think that's because I had a much, I just was much more arrogant about my own writing abilities. (laughs) I was like, yeah, this is great. Um, now I'm like, oh, I, I, I've, I've switched teams. I'm now team revision, but that means I have still have to get through the first draft, which is the worst. So that's what I'm working on. Mm. Have you been reading anything? I did not read anything over the break, um, at all. My family was very sick and I was the least sick. So I was the sick person taking care of two more sick people. Um, so didn't get a single thing done. I did buy the <laughs> Harry Potter books <laughs> on audio, which I used to have on CD ages ago. But when we left New York, David accidentally threw away all my CDs. What? And I, yeah. Grounds for yeah. divorce. I mean, I married him and I'm still not sure. I'm, that's not true. I'm not <laughs> very sure why. But I couldn't even finish the sentence. But I, it was, I mean... Uh, I was not happy and I didn't realize it. So like we had like packed up our things and we like stopped, I think at my parents' house in Massachusetts, we drove from New York to Massachusetts and stayed at my parents' house for a couple of nights before, before moving and driving out to Minnesota. And I think I was like, oh, we should get my CDs out so we can like put them in the truck, um, and listen to them. And David was like, oh, did you keep some? And I was like, what, what do you mean? Did I keep some? (laughs) He thought somehow in his mind that I'd like ripped them all to my computer, but I hadn't. And it was just big. It was horrible. So like, I get really resentful now when I want to listen to something. I'm like, oh, I have that. And I'm like, no, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) Having to repurchase your entire music collection that you've been building since you were like 13 is really tough. Yeah. Because I still like a lot of that music. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So anyway. I bought the Harry Potter book, Harry Potter books on audio, and I've been listening to those. Um, and I just got from the library this morning, um, "Love Sugar Magic" by oh, yeah. Anna. Um, is it Mariano? Mariano, um, which is a middle grade book um, that just looks so delightful. I haven't started it yet, but uh, but it's I'm excited because I haven't read a, a middle grade in a long time, um, so I'm pretty excited about that. I also did not read anything over break. I was actually talking about this with some of my friends that I am in the worst reading rut. And it has been extremely difficult for me to get out of. And 
I don't know if it's partially me or if it's partially just I can't. There's just right now I'm I, there's just a mismatch between what I want to read and what is actually being published. Um, mm. But I am having the most difficult time reading anything. I don't want to read anything. That's the other thing. It's like I'm. This is the oddest feeling for me because even if I'm in a reading rut, I often try to read stuff, you know. But I'm at this point where I just don't want to read anything. I don't want, there's just, the nothing is, like, the act of actually opening up a book and reading is just like, oh, I don't want to do it. So, um, I did not read anything over the break. Not even an audiobook, now that I think about it. Because, like, I actually, like, looking back, even though I've been in a pretty terrible reading rut, I still managed to read stuff on audio. Um... But I just haven't read anything on audio, and I've got like 75 credits that I haven't bought anything. Um, But I did just buy Unearthed by Amy Kaufman and Megan Spooner. Um, And this sounds, you know, I'm hoping this will get me out of my rut. And it has nothing to do with Amy or Megan because I've loved all their books before. But it's Indiana Jones in Space. And I was like, I could, yeah, I, that sounds like something I would read. Yeah, like, so, um, and of course, Amy is a pub crawl uh, alumna, so... Um, so I, I got that. I bought Batman by Marie Lou. Yes. Um, I was, when I saw her and, and Lee Bardugo when I was home, um, I also, Rosh, Roshni Chakshi lent me The Bourbon Thief by Tiffany Rice. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I was like, who wrote that? I know that. Um, and I don't know if you, I've talked about Tiffany Rice before. She writes, um, really kinky erotica. So it's not for the faint of heart. It is actually, I almost hesitate to say it's erotica. I mean, there is sex in it. Yes. But it is very heavy on the kink, but not so heavy on the sex, the whole series. Um, but the bourbon thief is just, uh, not just, but it's an adult novel that's not a romance or not an erotica by Tiffany Rice. Um, so it's got a gorgeous cover. So I am looking forward to reading that as well, but not, this rut has been terrible. You guys, I, I just don't, I, I don't know what will break me out of it. I have, I feel like I've tried and every single time I've tried all those attempts have sort of fizzled out to try and really get back into reading. Cause I, I mean, I will still read the books still read books by authors whose work I've previously enjoyed, but it's really hard right now to kind of try anything new. Um, so like I said, I don't know if that's me or if it's just like a current mismatch between what I feel like reading and what is actually out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't, I read this over the summer, but it just came out as well as the cruel prince, which I loved. And if you guys have not, I've heard such good things. Yeah. If you guys have not read it, I highly recommend it. Um, this is going to sound kind of hubristic, but if you did like my book, I think you would like The Cruel Prince. <laughs> I loved it. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> um, yeah. So, any off-menu recommendations? Uh, off-menu recommendations. I don't even know what we've been doing lately. We are not watching anything new, really. So here's the thing. 
that's going to sound really ridiculous, but I've actually enjoyed it quite a lot. Um, I live in an apartment that has a real fireplace and it works and we do use it. Um, but for lots of reasons, we don't use it, um, daily or super frequently. It's not how we heat our apartment, um, or anything like that. So it's more just for atmosphere. Um, and sometimes I can't be bothered to light the actual fireplace and I have been putting on the Netflix fireplace on my TV <laughs> instead. <laughs> There's like eight of them on Netflix. It's like fireplace for your home, blah, blah, blah. But, um, when I'm working in the evening, it's just a really nice thing to have on in the background while I answer queries and stuff. So, I mean, I don't know. I recommend the fireplace on Netflix. <laughs> awesome. That's all I got. <laughs> I don't have anything else right now. Uh, let's see. Oh, I forgot to mention this in what we were reading. I finished the most recent volume of Saga. Uh, volume <gasps> I was talking to Mike and I realized I'm not caught up. You're not? <laughs> no. <laughs> I've only read the first two single issues in that volume. Okay. Okay. Um, I think I talked about volume seven on this podcast. And I, okay. I also, you guys, so I love Saga a lot. I'm almost too afraid to continue reading because of how emotional this book, these, these comic books essentially make me feel particularly because volume seven just like left a smoking crater in my emotions. <laughs> I have cried in every, every trade volume, like every single one that has been out at least once I've always, I've cried. And, and it's not, it's not actually even because it's sad. It's not always sad. In fact, saga is actually quite funny in places and really touching and heartfelt and also sad, but like also really great. And it's the, it's just how Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples are just able to just like get my emotions to just these high keys. And it's very exhausting. Um, so volume eight had come out and like I said, the volume seven really did just, it, it wrecked me. Um, and I was like terrified to read what happens next because I was so devastated by the end of seven and I, I, like, I literally, it's a, such a short volume. It's like 156 pages, but I was like practically reading with like one eye closed. Cause I was like, I don't know what's going to happen. Is it going to hurt? <laughs> like, It's always going to it's hurt. It's always going to hurt. Um, it's just what kind of hurt, I guess. Um, but, but volume eight ends unequivocally happily <laughs> and I need it and I needed that and I'm grateful it ended happily and it's all good, but I'm also now terrified to read on because it's not going to continue being this happy. Um, and I'm at the point too, where I'm just like, I just want nothing bad to happen to my characters ever again. I don't care if it's bad storytelling. I don't know if I could handle bad things happening to these characters anymore. Like, um, so yeah, if you guys have not read Saga, eight trade volumes are out, um, and they are very quick reads, and I highly, 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 highly recommend all of them. So there's that. Um, as far as other media, so over New Year's, Mark and I went to Las Vegas. Um, I, <laughs> I've been to Vegas so many times. Growing up in LA, it's not that far of a drive to go to Vegas, and, um, 
I think I was even there like last winter or the winter before, so it's not all that different for me. But um, Mark was pretty excited, so we went. We saw Star Wars while we were there, which is an off-menu recommendation, you guys, but I don't talk about it too much because Kelly has not seen it yet. Um, we saw the Penn and Teller magic show. I love magic shows so much. Me too. And I love Penn and Teller. <laughs> Me too. Um, it was great. I loved it. I mean, Mark and I, but Mark and I both love magic shows. And um, one of the funny things, so they had this, one of those tricks that the audience can do. So it's like when you, before you go into the, the show, you're supposed to take four playing cards and then they tell you to do these things. And it's, and, um, and it like, of course it worked out, but I was like, I just, I don't know. I love magic shows and I love being delighted this way. It was really great. We also saw Ka, which is one of the Cirque du Soleil shows. I love Cirque du Soleil. Unsurprisingly, I think for anybody who knows me, um, Ka is so I the last time I was in Vegas I saw O, which is the one with the with the pool and it's all sort of like water themed. Ka is the one with a gigantic moving stage. And oh. of all of the Cirque du Soleil shows, this one actually has the strongest narrative through line. Because most of the Cirque du Soleil shows sort of have an idea or a concept that all the acts are kind of themed around. But Ka actually has a narrative. Um and it's and it's sort of Asian themed as well. So like the the sets and the costume and the music are Asian inspired. I really loved Khan. I thought it was great. And Mark also really enjoyed Khan. I like later asked. I was like, so what was your favorite part? And he's like, the cute puppets. And I was like, not like the death defying acts or anything. The puppets, but sure, that's fine. His favorite part of Star Wars was also the Porgs. So I think this, of course it was. So I think this just goes to show you what kind of person he is. But like. Uh, so Call was really great, and I also he and I also started watching the newest season of Black Mirror, which was released on Netflix also over the new year. Um, it's I, I don't know. I mean, I like Black Mirror a lot, and the good episodes are good, and the not so great episodes I think are much more noticeable because there are more episodes this season. So the first three seasons of Black Mirror were three episodes each. Mm -hmm. So not even the first three. So it was like the first two. The first two were three episodes each. And then there was a Christmas special. And then they, then it got picked up by Netflix. And so season four, I think, had like six episodes. And I also think we're, we're only on episode four of the newest season. This one also has six. And I feel like you can tell that it's the quality isn't quite as tight or the the satire or the social commentary isn't quite as sharp because there are so many episodes um yeah because the most recent one mark and i just finished was metalhead and i hated it i hated it and i didn't hate it because it was necessarily bad i mean it's not a good episode but I was like, this is literally the most pointless thing I've ever watched. And coming from Black Mirror, which generally every episode is pretty sharp in, in, in saying something pretty pointed about society that we live in, about technology or whatever, it said nothing. And it was just tense for the sake of being tense. 
And then paradoxically, that just made me bored. So I hated it. But on the other hand, you know, the first episode, USS Callister was pretty great. So it's like, it's, it's very, it's much more uneven, I think, than kind of the first two seasons of Black Mirror. But I still think that they're pretty brilliant. And if you guys like the Twilight Zone, I think Black Mirror is definitely something to check out. Um, other than that, I finished this second playthrough of Dragon Age Origins, where I made the same exact decisions I made the first time around. But this time <laughs> I did all of the quests, so... <laughs> um, I think I'd, I'd seen something on Tumblr that was just like a picture of like a freeway exit, and a car like... Skier, you know, like kind of like steering off to the exit at the very last minute, and it was just like all the games in my backlog, and then <laughs> Dragon Age making the same exact decisions I did the last ten times, and it's like the car veering off that way, and I was like, that is a little too real. Um, because like because I didn't read anything when I was home, it didn't feel like reading when I was home. My parents do have a PS3. So I just was like, fine, I'll play that. And I, I did. I managed to finish all the side quests. I did play as a different character and class this time. Um, and I also made Alistair King as opposed to keeping him a Grey Warden. And then I played the all of the downloadable content as well. And um, so that was, that was what I did. And now I'm just kind of still playing Dragon Age, to be completely honest. So that's that's... That's it. Dragon Age forever. Never going to stop. Probably not. Well, no, that's that's a lie. I can already kind of tell. So not that I'm necessarily tired of it, but it, it's like I'm trying to play through one continuous story. So because I played Inquisition first, I almost don't count that first playthrough of Inquisition. First of all, I felt like I did it wrong because I did all of the story-based based quests different points and I forgot that it just I didn't enjoy not that I didn't enjoy I enjoyed that experience but I felt like I didn't do it properly um plus all the decisions I made through my first playthroughs of Origins and Dragon Age 2 didn't transfer over to Inquisition so I am actually playing Origins and Inquisition simultaneously, or not simultaneous, but it's like, I feel like I'm going to do this all once again, but it's like experiencing two different stories. So the first, the first storyline I'm playing Inquisition to complete is the one where I was, uh, the one where Alistair remains a Grey Warden at the end of Dragon Age Origins, because if you do that, he actually shows up again in Inquisition which I didn't get the first time I played. So I'm like completing this story um, or this this version of the universe where Alistair did not become king. But the playthrough of Origins that I did when I was home is the storyline or the alternate universe now where Alistair is king. So clearly I'm playing through all the games again to finish that. And then I think I'll probably actually be done. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and after that, I, I do think I, I said I was going to play Mass Effect next, but I actually think I'm going to play, uh, Horizon Zero Dawn instead. I bought it and it just looks really cool. So that's all I've got for off menu, off menu recommendations. 
It's probably going to be the same thing in this section for a while, you guys, so just don't expect anything new from me. Um, all right, so we do have some questions. Cool. I didn't check the email, but uh, we did get some on No, there's nothing in there. Let's see. Okay, so this question is from Margaret Torres. And she asks, do you recommend a writer send their book to an editor before attempting to get an agent? No, we've answered this one before, I think. And I think um, nine times out of ten, the answer is no. Um, I think that, you know, if it's just a copy edit, like cleanup type thing, that type of stuff isn't going to stop you from getting representation as long as your book isn't glaring with typos and grammatical errors. Um, you know, that's fine. You don't need to send to an editor for that. Um, if it's big structural stuff, um, you know, I would try a couple of different things before hiring an editor. Um, I would, you know, try working with critique partners or beta readers and seeing if you can revise on your own in a way that improves the story to a certain point. Um, because again, you know, if you do secure representation, your agent is going to edit the manuscript and then your editor, if it sells, is going to edit the manuscript. So there's a lot of editing that's going to be done. Um, so I think unless your manuscript is in really bad shape and you're getting no positive responses or you're getting feedback that says, you know, there's some real structural problems here or there's, you know, some big problems in the writing. Um, you know, I wouldn't hire an editor with the goal in mind of securing representation. Um, nine times out of 10, there is always an exception. Um, and I think that, you know, there are tons of editors who do wonderful work and, you know, but I, I think that for the average writer, you don't need to hire an editor before you query. The other question is, what are you looking to get out of hiring an editor? Because if it's a big structural, the only time I would suggest that you hire a freelance editor for your work is... It wouldn't be before you attempt to get an agent, for sure. But if you're getting consistent feedback about structural issues and you don't know how to fix them, I think getting an editorial consultation might help in that an editor might be able to sort of hold your hand and teach you how to fix that problem. But it doesn't guarantee anything. It, it won't guarantee representation. It won't guarantee that it will get a deal. None of this is guaranteed. So you do have to think about what you are paying an editor for. And if you're doing it because you want somebody to help teach you, I guess that's different. But also at the same time, you can, you know, take classes. But if you want somebody to actually look at your work and then teach you using your own work as an example, then I think that, you know, sure, if you want to. It is not necessary or really even recommended. I think you learn how to write by writing. So if what you're working on is getting a bunch of rejections, then maybe 
just shelve it for now and write something else. And hopefully you learn something new with every manuscript. And when you are a better writer in the future, you can go back to that first project and rewrite it. But before an agent, no, I, it's not really recommended. So, okay. We have another question from Rachel Feinberg. And she asks, regarding personalized rejections on foals, how should a writer weigh contradicting feedback from agents? Um, that depends on the feedback, really, I think, and also what your vision for the book is. Um, you know, I think agents, it's a subjective industry, so everyone has their own personal, um, you know, opinions, their likes and dislikes. And so one person, you know, one agent might not like this character, but the other, you know, agent might really like that character. Um, so a lot of it is going to be subjective. So you kind of have to card through a lot of that. And I think a lot of times when you're getting conflicting things, you know, I think you should cut this subplot or I think you should strengthen that subplot, whatever. You kind of have to look at what your vision for the book is and what story you are trying to tell and incorporate the feedback that is going to lead you to strengthening the story that you want to tell. Um, even when I edit my clients' books, I always tell them that they're the writer. And while I might think that my editorial suggestions are helpful, they are not mandatory. And that my writers are always in control of their own story. And if they disagree with the feedback that I give them, then we can talk about other ways to try to strengthen things or, you know, fix some plot holes or whatever it is, um, you know, that they're more comfortable with. Um, agents are not, you know, feedback or editorial feedback from agents or even editors is not ironclad. It's not, um, something you have to do. Um, I think incorporating feedback into your work is useful. I think it does make for a better book most of the time, but you know, if, if an agent's feedback is, I hate this character, cut them. And you love that character and that character is important to the story that you want to tell, then don't listen to that feedback. Maybe try to find a way to make that character more integral to the story or, you know, whatever, if you can, but if you can't, if the feedback is worthless to you, then don't take it. Um, you know, and I think that, I think for most things, most of the time, I think feedback will be pretty consistent if there are glaring issues, you know, if you have structural issues, you know, most agents are going to point to the same types of things because those are just objective problems with the book. Um, and when you get into more opinionated type of feedback or more nuanced feedback, um, that's not as objective, then, you know, if you have two conflicting pieces of feedback, take the one that resonates with you and leave the other one in the dust. Yeah, the point about taking feedback is that you're taking feedback that will help strengthen your vision for the book. Um, sometimes conflicting feedback uh, in that the that 
the advice is conflicting, but they're still pointing to the same issue. Yeah. There's those types of feedback as well. Um, generally, though, I think at the querying stage, most agents will not be will not necessarily be giving feedback that prescriptive. The, they might have suggestions or questions or things like that, but I don't think they're going to be like, well, you need to do this and this and this. Um, so, but if you are getting conflicting, conflicting feedback about the same issue, then maybe look at the issue and try and figure out what about that, what about that particular issue isn't working and yeah. you may find a totally different way to resolve it, or you may pick the one, or you may go with the feedback that resonates you, or however you want to do it. But sometimes when you do that, and it's even if the advice is different, it's still pointing at the same thing, then that is something definitely to look at. Um, but yeah, always you know, definitely just go with the one that you that resonates with you and that will make your that will bring your book closer to the vision that you have for it. Mm-hmm. All right. So that is it for questions. I believe we have one that was left on the, bl- on the website. Oh, on we the do. Blog. Okay. What's that question? Um, that's from Haley. She says, I am planning on applying to the Columbia publishing course and the NYU summer publishing Institute. And I was wondering what you thought of the programs. Um, I don't think either one of us has attended a publishing program, so we can't give you feedback on those, uh, unfortunately. Didn't David go to the Summer Publishing Institute at NYU? Um, no, he went to Pace at the publishing program, um, for his master's and he dropped out. Um, he got a job at Sterling Lord Literistic as a foreign rights agent, and he just stopped going to school because um, he didn't need it. <laughs> I think, you know, I think we've talked briefly about those types of courses before. I think there's um, certainly benefits. Um, my understanding as a person who has not attended and does not know anything um, firsthand about these programs, so this is all, you know, uh, assumption-based but my understanding is that they're kind of a wide overview of the publishing industry. It touches a little bit on various departments, a little bit of marketing, a little bit of editing, a little bit of, you know, all kinds of different things about how the agency or not the agency, but the industry works. Um, so I don't think it's really necessarily an in-depth look at any one aspect of the industry. It's more of an overview is my understanding. Um you know, I think publishing programs are great. I think that they will not replace hands-on experience in terms of obtaining employment. I agree. So here comes the brutal honesty where JJ is bad cop again. (laughs) I don't have a problem with any of these institutions or any of these publishing courses. I think if you want to do them and if you want to spend the money to attend them, that is your decision. It is up to you. I think, uh, obviously, I have not attended. Um, so I can't actually speak to the coursework or what they teach. Um, clearly, Kelly and I both got jobs in publishing without them. So that's, you know, one thing to consider in that it's not necessary to get a job in publishing. Um, I think that they are useful for people who have, who don't live in the city, for them to attend and make contacts with people who work in publishing because we have, because when I worked at my publisher, we did hire, you know, 
some assistance out of both programs. But this is where I'm going to be kind of brutal and say it's really only open to privileged people. Yes. It already costs so much money to live in New York City. And then you're paying tuition to go to this program on top of that. That is a lot of money to spend on something that may or may not even warrant you a job in this chosen field. Kelly and I both happened to be living in New York when we got our jobs in publishing. We were already there for other reasons. I was there because I went to school in New York. I went to NYU and I was, you know, I never didn't go back to where I was from. Um, so we were already there. So we didn't, it, like I said, it's prohibitively expensive to live in New York City. Publishing doesn't pay a lot. But if you want to spend the money and you have the wherewithal to do so, and you want to do it because this is the best and e not the easiest, but the best way for you to make contacts in the industry, because it is hard. I'm not saying that it isn't hard to make contacts in this industry. Then by all means, go ahead. But as far as I'm just saying, it's this is not an option that's open to everybody who wants to work in publishing. <laughs> you know, it me, we're on brand. Yay. <laughs> That's all for this week. Next week, we'll be continuing this series with uh, character relationships and how important it is to building characters in general. So as always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance as it helps other listeners find the podcast. If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. <laughs> you can also follow us on Twitter at pubcrawlblog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at publishingcrawl. You can follow me, JJ, at sjjones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter or my website, sjjones.com. You can follow me, Kelly, at Bookish Chick on Twitter or my website, penandparsley.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, author of Retribution Rails, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com, send us an ask through Tumblr, or on Twitter with the hashtag AskPubCrawl. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye. Thank you.